Max is a former head of the Wall Street Journal op-ed page for many years, but is no ordinary senior fellow at a think tank. He's advised many senior U.S. military commanders up to and including General David Petraeus in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a, he's a, le a lecturer at the Army War College and at many other military institutions and a regular contributor on military and foreign policy affairs to the Weekly Standard, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. The book he'll talk about this evening is called Invisible Armies, as you can see up there, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. It is his third on broadly topics of war, and one of them about war and technological advances that tremendously changed the way people thought about war or was able to practice war. Invisible Armies has just been released in the last couple of days and has already been highly acclaimed with remarkable reviews in The Daily Beast, The Economist, Foreign Affairs, Commentary, The New Criterion, The Wall Street Journal, and this coming Sunday, the upcoming front page of the New York Times book review. If there's any justice in the world, which most of the days I seriously doubt, <laughs> Max Boot should be a candidate to, to win the Pulitzer Prize this year. This is an extraordinary book. It's especially important right now because of the endless discussions going on about Iraq, about Afghanistan, about unconventional wars involving terrorists, the kinds of situations that for most of our lives, many of us never really had thought about before. Not so long ago, we discussed war almost exclusively in the context of state-on-state -state conflicts like World War I or World War II. What Max does so brilliantly is remind us that it wasn't ever thus. In fact, unconventional warfare has been the constant in the course of human events for over 2,000 years. He begins in the Middle East with the Romans and the Jews and ends in the Middle East with Afghanistan. In between, he scans world history and world conflict through the critically important prison of unseen rebels, revolutionaries, terrorists, and warriors who led them, and the strategies they developed in terms of these conflicts. The reason I think it's so important to sit down and read this book is that it is not only a guide through the past, but it will help you understand what will inevitably play a major role in the future. It's written beautifully, making history truly come alive. And Max does this as a scholar, not trying to advance a particular political point of view, but rather to make readers aware that this form of warfare has been with us a very long time, and I think will sadly be with us for years to come. The book is a guide to that future. Finally, 
there are a lot of people in this audience. If you don't read the book, you should still buy it. <laughs> Authors need our support. Max Boot deserves it. And the book is available tonight in our retail store. And I think you will enjoy it if you sit down to read it. So without much further ado, let me turn the microphone over to tonight's speaker, Max Boot. Well, thank you very much, Roger, for that very generous and warm introduction, and of course, for telling this audience what every author wants every audience to hear, which is buy the book as opposed to the other way. The very worst words that any author could possibly hear are, oh yes, I enjoyed reading your book. I borrowed it from the library. <laughs> and I'm deeply grateful to be introduced by Roger, which simply adds to the immense debt that I already owe to him, because I am afraid that this book that you see here would perhaps would not exist were it not without the kind and generous support that Roger has provided me over the years. But in that, I'm hardly alone because I'm not sure this very institution in which we are all sitting would exist, at least in its present form, were it not for Roger's kind and generous support over the years. I would submit to everybody here that th those of us who are interested in the study of history, and indeed anybody interested in the future of the United States and of our intellectual life, owes an immense and growing debt to Roger Hertog. Now he'll never talk to me again because I've embarrassed him in front of this large audience. Well, the book that I'm, I'm here to talk to you about today is, is one that has taken me six years to write. And in the course of writing that book, I tried to do something fairly formidable and very difficult, which is to encompass something like 5,000 years of guerrilla warfare, of, of the history of guerrilla warfare into a single volume. But tonight, I'm going to try to do something even more impressive. <laughs> I am going to try to encompass 5,000 years of guerrilla warfare history into about 25 minutes. So that works out to about 200 years per minute. So fasten your seatbelts. However, I do have a secret weapon to help me. As you can see, I have slides. And I have never used these before, but I was inspired by John Lewis Gaddis, who gave a very memorable address here that some of you may have seen about more than a year ago about his book on George Kennan. And so my thinking is, because John Lewis Gaddis, with his Kennan biography, went on to win the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award and every other prize known to man, I'm thinking it's really the PowerPoints that do it. So I'm going to be in great shape. Well, the question that I always get asked when I tell people that I've undertaken this hubristic task of writing a history of guerrilla warfare is, what is the first guerrilla war that you write about? And the answer is, it's really hard to say what the first guerrilla war is because guerrilla wars have been around as long as mankind has been on this earth. Because tribal war is essentially guerrilla war. Tribes don't have standing armies. They don't have governments. They certainly don't have uniforms. They engage in hit-and-run, ambush-type attacks. They will, for example, fire, fire arrows into an enemy's village and then escape 
before the other warriors of the other tribe can come up and attack them. That is the essence of guerrilla warfare, and it has been going on as long as mankind has been on this planet. By contrast, conventional warfare is a relatively recent invention. It only arose about 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, because until you had the first city-states, you could not have, by definition, conventional armies supported by taxes and with an elaborate structure of ranks and uniforms and all the other paraphernalia that we associate with conventional forces. But even after you had the very first conventional armies rising, that did not mean that unconventional warfare went away. In fact, it remained pervasive. The very first city-states had to grapple with the attacks of rebels from within and nomadic raiders from without. What that suggests to me is the very way we think about this topic is all messed up. Because we, this, just think about the terminology that we use here. We talk about irregular warfare, unconventional, somehow implying that there's something wrong with it, that this is not the way you're supposed to fight. But in fact, this is the way mankind has always fought. I mean, just think about the present day. What was the last conventional war the world has seen? I'm not going to put you on the spot because I'm guessing not that many people would get it. The last conventional war the world has seen occurred in 2008 when Georgia invaded Russia and the war lasted a few weeks. However, all the time as we speak right now around the world, people are dying in places like Afghanistan, Syria, Mali, Myanmar, Colombia, and many other places. They are not dying in conventional wars. They are dying in unconventional wars which have always been the norm and always will be. And we need to adjust our thinking to take notice of this simple fact. That's what I'm trying to do with, with this book. Every great army throughout history, not only the US Army, has had to spend a lot of its time and energy grappling with the threat posed by unconventional warriors, if I may, if I may, if I may use that, that admittedly, uh, uh, that admittedly uh, inaccurate phrase. Think of the Roman legions, for example, which were the most formidable military force in the ancient world, even when they were not led by Russell Crowe. <laughs> but the Roman legions, as we know, faced constant threats of guerrilla warfare, and ultimately, Rome fell in the fifth century AD. Rome was sacked. And how did Rome fall? Well, Rome, a little bit like the United States, was the preeminent superpower of its day, which did not truly face a conventional great power rival. What it really faced were the threat posed by barbarians, the tribes on its frontiers, most of whom fought, yes, basically as guerrillas, because they did not, for the most part, have state structures. They did not have conventional armies like the Roman legions. Ultimately, the fall of Rome was precipitated by one of the most ferocious groups of raiders known to history, the Huns. Now, when they entered Europe, after they entered Europe in about AD 370, a Roman historian left this description of their methods of operation. He wrote, they are very quick in their operations, of exceeding speed and fond of surprising their enemies. They suddenly disperse and reunite, and again, after having inflicted vast loss upon the enemy, scatter themselves over the whole plain in irregular formations, always avoiding a fort or an entrenchment. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you, 
is a description of guerrilla warfare as it has been practiced since time immemorial. And the Huns, under their ferocious leader Attila, succeeded so well that they actually pushed Germanic tribes and other tribes into the Roman Empire and brought about the collapse of the greatest empire of antiquity. So that is a sign of what guerrillas can accomplish. Now, by stressing the ancient origins of guerrilla warfare, I do not by any stretch mean to suggest that nothing has changed over the course of the last several thousand years. A lot has changed. And to my mind, the most important change of all has been the rise of what I call the two Ps, politics and propaganda. And this is a change that I believe is symbolized best by our very own revolution, including, of course, one of the most famous documents produced by that revolution, Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Now, when we think of the battles of the American War of Independence, we tend to think of battles such as Lexington and Concord and many others, where very often the Yankees would slither on their bellies, as the Redcoats said, and snipe from behind trees and rocks and not fight like proper gentlemen should. This was very discouraging to the Redcoats. And it took a toll on the Redcoats, but it did not necessarily defeat the Redcoats on the field of battle. We tend to think, at least as I remember learning about the American Revolution in school, when, back in the days when it was still taught, uh, that the revolution ended with the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, when Cornwallis surrendered approximately 7,000 regulars to General Washington. But I have news for you. The British Empire could have easily continued fighting after 1781. It was a great empire with tens of thousands of troops in North America and tens of thousands more that it could have summoned from uh, other parts of the empire or from mercenaries hired from the German states. But why didn't the British Empire continue fighting? The answer is because of a new institution, the power of parliament and the power of public opinion. Rest assured that if, the, if our forefathers had been fighting the Roman Empire and not the British Empire, it would not have ended well for them because the Roman Empire did not give up, typically, even after a defeat or two. I have very little doubt if the founding fathers had been resisting the Romans rather than the British, they would have wound up being crucified, quite literally. The fact that this did not happen is due to the power of public opinion, a phrase I might note, which was first used in print in that fateful year, 1776. Ultimately, I would submit to you, the American Revolution was decided here in the House of Commons on February 28, 1782, when the House passed by a relatively narrow margin, 234 to 215, a motion to discontinue offensive operations in North America. This was a stinging rebuke to Lord North and his Tory government, which was bent on fighting the war as hard as they possibly could. And it led to the rise of Lord Rockingham and his Whibs and his Whigs, who were committed to a policy of conciliation with their American brothers. And this was not just a coincidental event, by the way. The colonists from the very start, even with our very Declaration of Independence, were attempting to play on public opinion, not just in the colonies, but also abroad in England, because they understood how important it was to influence the views that the English people had of the war that was being waged in their name. Now think about this for a second. A mighty empire that has not truly lost on the battlefield is nevertheless forced to give up significant 
concessions, to give up its colonies because of the power of public opinion. This was something truly new under the sun. This was not something that empires or monarchies of the past had to worry about, but it was a factor now because even though the colonists fancied that they were fighting the evil Lord George, uh, King George, they were actually fighting a government that had parliamentary approval and depended upon the approval of parliament to stay the course. And because the British troops were not winning quick victories, public opinion turned against the war in England and ultimately ended the war. Now, this is an example that many, many insurgents in centuries past have studied and attempted to emulate, including insurgents we ourselves have fought in places like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. They are essentially operating in many ways from the playbook of the American founding fathers in terms of using the power of public opinion against the much mightier army that they are facing. And this was something that was, uh, became an important factor in the writings of one of the most influential insurgent theorists of all time, Mao Zedong. In 1938, sitting in a cave in northern China, working by candlelight so intently, focused on his task that he didn't notice a fire burning a hole in his shoe, Mao wrote a work that still influences the way terrorists and guerrillas fight around the world, an essay called On Protracted Warfare. And of course, Mao stressed that in order to be successful, an insurgent army had to gain the support of the people. Famously, he wrote, the people are like water and the army is like fish. He stressed that his forces had to keep the closest possible relations with the common people. He told them, be courteous and polite, pay for all articles, establish latrines a safe distance from people's houses. These were not instructions that Attila would have issued to his Huns. And the reason Mao was issuing them was not because he was a good guy. I'm not sure that he was any morally superior to Attila the Hun, but he was smart and he understood the way insurgent warfare had changed in the 20th century. He understood the importance of politics and propaganda, and he stressed that in his instructions, and that became a key element in the ultimate success of the Red Army in China. Now, if anything, politics and propaganda are even more important when it comes to the work of terrorists rather than guerrillas, because terrorism is, as the anarchists said in the 19th century, propaganda by the deed. Terrorists have even fewer military resources than guerrillas. They cannot possibly hope to defeat their enemy on any kind of quasi-conventional battlefield. All they can do is try to demoralize their enemy by striking a few hard blows. And this is something, of course, that we are very familiar with, unfortunately, over the course of the last decade. Osama bin Laden went so far as to argue that the media war is 90% of the whole in the waging of jihad. That's how important he believed it was to influence public opinion all around the world. Now, I would argue that the fact that public opinion and propaganda and the news media have become such major factors in irregular warfare is something that works to the disadvantage of powers like ours that have a very powerful conventional military because public opinion is a great leveling factor. It's something that allows an enemy with very little strength on the battlefield to nevertheless prevail by changing the tide of public opinion. And I think 
that development has something to do with the fact that I uncovered in the course of writing this book. The fact is, the win rate for insurgents has been going up. Prior to 1945, insurgents won about roughly 20% of their wars. Since 1945, they've been winning about 40% of their wars. That's a pretty big increase in effectiveness. And certainly part of it can be attributed to the spread of more powerful weapons and other factors, but I think a lot of it has to do with the great power of public opinion and propaganda, which is the great equalizer in this kind of warfare. However, let's not get carried away. And there has been a tendency in the post-war era to get carried away because we tend to focus on the successes of a few high-profile insurgents, Mao Zedong and Ho Chi Minh and Fidel Castro and a few others. And there's a tendency to think as a result, insurgents are invincible. Well, it just ain't so. Just as very few business startups ever become Apple or Microsoft, very few insurgencies ever become Mao's Red Army or, or Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh and Viet Cong. And to make that point, I would refer you to one of the most famous insurgents of all time, Che Guevara, whose picture once used to decorate every dorm room wall in the planet. <laughs> and every t-shirt, I might add. Now, how did, how did Che become so, so famous? How did he become such an icon? Well, it has to do with the fact that in the 1950s, he and his friend, Fidel Castro, overthrew the Batista regime in Cuba, which was a pretty impressive achievement because the rebel army, led by Castro with lieutenants such as Che Guevara, never had more than a few hundred fighters, and they were facing this regime that had thousands of soldiers supplied by us with tanks and aircraft and all the conventional munitions you could possibly imagine. So this was a pretty big deal when the rebel army succeeded in taking over Cuba. But guess what? There is a reason why they were so successful with so few men. And the reason has to do with the incredible weakness of the Batista regime, which had lost its basic legitimacy. Pretty much all of Cuban society had turned against Batista, who was corrupt and a dictator. He had very little popular support. However, what happened next is, is pretty interesting because Che Guevara, for one, like many successful military commanders throughout history, suffered from a touch of hubris. He assumed that because he had been successful in Cuba, he could be successful anywhere. And so he tried to export his revolution to Bolivia in 1966. There he is right there. However, in Bolivia, he encountered very different conditions from those which had prevailed in Cuba in the 1950s. Che Guevara was not fighting a dictator in Bolivia. He was fighting a popularly elected president who had already enacted land reform and much of the agenda that had uh, made uh, Castro and his group so popular in Cuba. Whereas Che Guevara came in as an outsider with a small band of a few men, most of them Cubans or other Latin Americans, they didn't even speak the language of the local Indians. In fact, when he was fighting in Bolivia, Che's best friend was his mule Chico. So it should be no surprise that by 1967, Che Guevara was hunted down by these guys, Bolivian Army Rangers trained by U.S. Army Special Forces. And at the end, here is poor Che Guevara, his corpse being poked by his enemies. That was the end of Che, one of the most famous and storied insurgent leaders in history. 
I would submit to you that if Che Guevara could be defeated, any insurgent could be defeated. The question is, how do you go about doing it? There are different ways of doing it. In the 1950s, for our benefit, Britain and France ran a virtual controlled experiment in different ways to fight insurgencies. They were fighting on, 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 on different corners of the planet. The French were fighting in Algeria from 1954 to 1962. The British were fighting in Malaya from 1948 to 1960. And they adopted very different methods of fighting. The French exemplified the scorched earth, mailed fist approach to counterinsurgency, whereas the British were more emblematic of what is popularly known as, as the hearts and minds school of counterinsurgency, and which lately has been dubbed population-centric counterinsurgency. I'd like to talk to you for a minute about what those two different approaches actually entail. If you want to know what happened in Algeria during the Algerian War of Independence, a good place to start is the Battle of Algiers, that wonderful movie, which is one of the greatest movies ever made about uh, insurgent warfare. But it's actually pretty simple what the French did when they were confronted in 1957 with an insurgent cell operating in Algiers, which was setting off bombs that were killing civilians, a wave of terrorism that was striking terror into the heart of the European community in Algiers. What the French did was they sent the 10th Parachute Division into the Caspah, the native quarter of Algiers, and they rounded up tens of thousands of Muslim men. And then they took them in for interrogation to figure out who were the terrorist plotters hiding in their midst. And we know what happened next because of the account left by this man, Henri Alleg. He was not Algerian. He was actually a French communist, a Jew, who ran a Republican newspaper in Algiers. But that was enough of a crime to get him arrested by the paratroopers in 1957. Now, I think we're all familiar with medieval instruments of torture, like the rack or the Iron Maiden. But Henri Alleg, after he was arrested, was introduced to a more modern instrument of torture known as the Gijane, as the French security forces called it. This was a simple dynamo with a couple of clips that you can attach to the appendages of the detainee and a crank that you could turn to generate electricity. And the faster you turn, the more electricity comes out. Now, Henri Alleg learned firsthand about this fiendish instrument of interrogation when he was stripped naked by the paratroopers, marched into a room, tied to a wooden plank with leather straps. And he had these clips attached to his ear and his finger. He later wrote, a flash of lightning exploded next to my ear and I felt my heart racing in my breast. I struggled, screaming. But he was tough, this newspaper editor. He still did not give up the information the paratroopers were angrily demanding. And so then, one of the clips was taken off of his ear and it was attached to his penis. He said, my body shook with nervous shocks, getting stronger in intensity. But still, he did not tell the paratroopers what they wanted to know. So they dragged him off the table using his tie as a collar, and they beat him savagely, pummeling him with their fists. And then he was introduced to another instrument of torture that the paratroopers called the Tuyo, 
and which we know as waterboarding. He wrote, I had the impression of drowning in a terrible agony of death itself took possession of me. Then, when the paratroopers were done with him, they threw him in a cell, still naked, on a barbed wire mattress where he was left alone all night to hear the thuds and the screams of other detainees who were getting similar treatment in this interrogation facility. Now, you will sometimes hear it said, in fact, you may often hear it said, that torture simply doesn't work. I wish it were so, because if torture didn't work, its prevalence in this type of warfare would be truly inexplicable, aside from the sadism of a few interrogators. But in fact, however morally reprehensible, torture was tactically effective in the Battle of Algiers. Within a few months, the French actually managed to crack the insurgent cell in Algiers. They managed to ferret out all of the leaders who were setting off the bombs, and by the end of 1957, Algiers was safe. So the French had won a tactical victory. The problem was the tactical victory came at the price of strategic defeat because they could not possibly keep secret what was happening in this major city located so close to the shores of Europe. And gradually, pictures came out, accounts came out, including the account written by Henri Alleg. He wrote a book called The Question, which became a bestseller, selling 50,000 copies in a few months. And as it dawned on the people of France and the people of the world what the French security forces were doing in Algeria, support for the war evaporated, not only uh, in France itself, but also among French allies and here at the United Nations. And so at the end of the day, France could not hold on to Algeria. In 1962, Algeria became independent. And so the very rough scorched earth tactics which the French had used to try to prevail in Algeria ultimately backfired on them. Now, a very different approach to counterinsurgency was being employed at almost exactly the same time on the other end of the world, in Malaya, by this man, General Sir Gerald Templer, who should not be confused with this man, the actor David Niven, for whom he is a dead ringer. So this man, not this man. <laughs> this man became the commander of British forces in Malaya in 1952 and the high commissioner, the political as well as the military head of the counterinsurgency campaign. And when he arrived, he confronted a pretty dire situation because the Malayan Races Liberation Army, a communist organization, communist nationalist organization, was running wild. They were blowing up trains. They had even attacked Gerald Templer's predecessor and killed him. In fact, General Templer drove from the airport in Kuala Lumpur in the very Rolls Royce in which his predecessor had been shot to death a few months before. Now that must have been a fun ride. It would have been very understandable if under those circumstances, General Templer had resorted to scorched earth tactics himself in order to end the insurgency. But that's not what he did because Templer understood that in order to win, what he had to do was not terrorize the population, but control the population. And that's exactly what he set about doing. One of his most important initiatives was known as the New Villages, because he understood that the insurgency was fueled by the discontent of something like half a million Chinese squatters who were not citizens of Malaya, who had no title to their land, who were outsiders in this society, and therefore they were susceptible 
to the siren song of the communist insurgency. And so what General Templer did was he resettled many of these Chinese squatters into these new villages where they had fields to till and where they had medical clinics and schools. And oh, by the way, they were also surrounded by fences and armed guards. So they were completely cut off from the insurgency. He was drying up the sea in which the insurgent fish swam. He also sent aircraft to overfly insurgent-held areas. And he wasn't sending them to bomb the insurgents. He was sending them to drop leaflets, telling them to surrender. Or sometimes these aircraft had loudspeakers attached to them, and they would call out individual insurgents by name, saying, you, so-and-so, surrender, which was a pretty spooky and effective tactic. He also ended the fruitless jungle bashing that the British Army had engaged in before, much as the U.S. Army and Marine Corps would later do in Vietnam where large formations would go thrashing around the jungle looking for insurgents, but not finding them. What General Templer emphasized was growing special branch, increasing the collection of intelligence so you could pinpoint the insurgent strongholds in the jungle. He even imported headhunters from Borneo to help his troops track down the insurgents. But ultimately, he understood that the focus of the counterinsurgency had to be on the population. And General Templer is associated with two famous sayings. He said, first, the shooting side of the business is only 25% of the trouble, and the other 75% lies in getting the people of the country behind us. He also said, the answer lies not in pouring more troops into the jungles, but in the hearts and minds of the people. Those are two very famous sayings which are really uh, emblematic of the hearts and minds or population-centric school of counterinsurgency. Now, this doesn't mean being Mr. Nice Guy. It doesn't mean just handing out goodies here, left and right to the population in the hopes that they would love you. That's not what he did. He focused on controlling the population, putting security first. But he also understood that to be successful, any counterinsurgency needs to have not only security, but also legitimacy. There has to be a reason why the people are willing to support the security forces. And General Templer was smart enough to understand that he had to offer the people of Malaya something positive to look forward to. What he offered them was independence. He basically made a deal with them saying, if you support us, the British, against the communist insurgency, we will give you, the Malayans, independence. We will make you your own nation, which was a pretty good deal. That's what the people of Malaya wanted. Now, that sounds pretty obvious, but you know what? The French didn't get that in Algeria. They insisted on making their Algerian allies fight for Algeria to remain a colony of France. And not surprisingly, there were not a lot of Algerians who were very enthusiastic about being ruled from France. So the fact that Templar understood you had to have security and you had to have legitimacy, those are the bedrocks of successful counterinsurgency, and not only in, in Malaya, but also in, in, in countries as, as different as Northern Ireland or Colombia, El Salvador, Iraq during the surge. This is what it's all about. Now, it's incredibly important that we understand these basics of insurgency and counterinsurgency because, unfortunately, the threat is not going away. As the burning of our consulate in Benghazi on September 11th, and the death of our ambassador and three other Americans should remind us the threat is not going away. Osama bin Laden may be dead, but unfortunately, Al-Qaeda lives. 
And certainly the events of recent days in, in Algeria and Mali have confirmed that, unfortunately. And in fact, despite the loss of Osama bin Laden, it's possible that the threat may actually be growing. Because one of the most significant trends of the past hundred years is the growing firepower available to insurgents. A century ago, Western armies fighting in the third world often met adversaries who were armed with nothing more than bows and arrows, spears, a few muskets, perhaps. Now, there is no corner of the world so remote that every young man doesn't have access to an AK-47, a rocket-propelled grenade, explosives. And who knows what's coming next? In fact, the ultimate nightmare is that a terrorist organization could get its hands on a weapon of mass destruction, that a terrorist organization might even be able to get its hands on a nuclear weapon. And if that were to happen, I'm afraid that George Clooney might not be around to save us. Now, I don't want to be overly alarmist, but this is something we need to think about very seriously. And at the, is at the risk of ending on a down note, I thought I would project here a map that I took out of a magazine that I'm sure all of you read. You probably have copies piled up in your house, the International Journal of Health Geographics. <laughs> this is a map of what would happen if a 20 kiloton nuclear device were set off in downtown Manhattan. Now, a 20 kiloton device is not very large. It's about the same size as the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. The nuclear arsenals of the United States and Russia contain many, many warheads that are much, much larger. But a 20 kiloton device could in the future easily be attainable by terrorists. And what would a 20 kiloton device do? Well, according to this study that was published in the International Journal of Health, Geographic, of Health Geographics, you can see from the blast radius going on up, and I guess we're, we're probably somewhere over there. So if you're out there past Yonkers, you're okay. If you're south of Yonkers, it's not gonna be a good day for you, unfortunately, because this study estimates that even a 20 kiloton device would injure about 1.6 million people and kill over 600,000. That's an attack that would make 9-11 look like a walk in the park by comparison. Now I know, I'm sure some of you think I'm being overly alarmist here, and I hope, I really hope that I am. But if you look at the instability in, in Pakistan, if you look at the progress of the Iranian nuclear program, at the progress of the North Korean nuclear program, this is not an eventuality which could possibly be ruled out. This is something we have to think very long and hard about. Rome was brought down by barbarians. It is vitally important, obviously, that we not be brought down by barbarians. And I think the benefit of wisdom on this subject is to understand the subject of insurgency and counterinsurgency and grasp how incredibly important it remains long after we're out of Afghanistan. This has always been and always will be the central way of war making. And I hope that if my book accomplishes anything, it is to contribute to some greater degree of understanding about this incredibly important form of warfare. So I thank you for your attention. And and now we have some time for questions. So if you'd like to ask a question, there's a couple of mics set up on either side of the room. Come on up. Fire away. Hi, I'm Jim Pucinich. I've often thought about the idea of, of a renegade getting 
a nuclear bomb like that. Can you explain the delivery system? Would it have to come from the air? Could it be something that was handled in a, in a package and, and delivered that way? The, the threat that I'm least worried about is a nuclear weapon being delivered by a missile or dropped from an airplane because missile defenses and anti-aircraft defenses should be able to deal with that kind of threat. Those kinds of anti-ballistic missile systems, for example, are getting much more potent. And so I think the day is not far off, the day is not already here, when a random uh, missile with a nuclear warhead or some other kind of warhead headed to our shore could be intercepted. The danger that I think should keep us awake at night is the danger of a nuclear bomb being smuggled in by terrorists, perhaps in, a, in the cargo container of a ship. That's the kind of threat which is very hard to defend against because the only way you can defend against it is with good intelligence work, good police work. There's no automatic technology that will provide a, a fail-safe way to stop that kind of, of weapon. And that's really true of, of uh, guerrilla warfare and terrorism in general. These are not forms of warfare that are susceptible to an easy technological solution. You have to have good intelligence. You have to figure out who the enemies are and what they're plotting. And that's very, very tough to do because when you're in the position of being the counterinsurgent as we are, you have to be right every single time. The other guys only have to be right once. Hi, uh, my name is Scott Matteris. I was hoping you could maybe talk about what role you see um, the drones, UAVs, um, Hellfire missile strikes, what role those play in either combating insurgencies or stoking the flames of insurgencies. Um, it's gotten a lot of press time um, as of late. I was hoping you could speak about that. Well, that's a good question because there's no question that we are becoming more and more reliant on drone strikes, especially in, in countries like Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia where we don't have a lot of personnel on the ground. And I think there is a tendency now, because we are so susceptible to the lure of high technology, there's a tendency now to think that this is an all-purpose solution to the threats that we face. Send up the drones, push a button, somebody blows up on the other side of the world, and we're safe. I wish it actually worked that way. But in fact, what drones can do is very limited. What they can do essentially is eliminate a few terrorist leaders, but they cannot prevent those terrorist leaders from being replaced. The only way to do that is to have some kind of government with security forces on the ground controlling that territory 24-7. It doesn't have to be our security forces. It could be somebody else's. Hopefully, it would be the local security forces. But unless you can do that, blowing up terrorist leaders is about as effective as mowing the lawn. It just regenerates itself. And I'm not against drone strikes, I might add. I think they are one of the best tools that we have in places like Pakistan, where we have very few good options. But we should not fool ourselves into thinking that these tactics are more effective than they actually are, because their utility is strictly limited. Ultimately, you still have to have intelligence. You still have to have security. You still have to have legitimacy for whichever government is fighting the, the insurgents. The basics of sound counterinsurgency still apply, and this has always been the method of warfare that is least, that is most resistant to a technological solution. The way that, that guerrillas and terrorists fight is always designed to negate the firepower advantage of a much more powerful conventional force. And rest assured, they will figure out how to blunt and negate the impact of our drone strikes. And someday soon, it probably won't be too long before drones are no longer the sole preserve of the United States. 
And sooner or later, our enemies, including terrorist groups, they're going to get their hands on drones too. So we should not become overly reliant upon this one particular weapon. The history of, of, of insurgency and counterinsurgency suggests that there is no easy answer to these kinds of conflicts. Sir. It's sort of a corollary to that. It, can you see a, a potential where a country like the United States or some large country with a large standing army could invade, you know, really on a large scale in a, in a sort of World War II type of a context? Or are we really at the point where everything is going to be 75 or 80 percent, you know, kind of technology and 10 or 20 percent, you know, people on the ground, foreign forces? Well, I know a lot of people who are devoutly hoping that our enemies will fight us in a conventional manner in the future. Those people typically serve in the, in the armed forces of the United States because the armed forces of the United States would love it if there were more enemies as stupid and as obliging as Saddam Hussein, who would put giant tank armies out in the desert with big flags and pretty much everything except a big hit me sign. That's the kind of war we can do very, very well. The problem is we've already demonstrated our mastery of this type of warfare to the world. And so my concern is there will be very few enemies in the future as obliging as Saddam Hussein who will fight us in precisely the way that we would prefer. On the other hand, if you're looking to resist American power and you look at the record and you say, wow, look at what the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese communists did to the United States in Vietnam in the 60s. Look at what happened to the United States in, in Beirut in 1983, in Somalia in 1993, in Iraq, and now in Afghanistan. You would have to conclude that using low-intensity tactics is a much more successful way to fight this superpower. And so I would submit to you that our enemies are not stupid. They can read this history as well as we can. And I think the odds are in the future that our enemies will use all sorts of irregular tactics to include newfangled irregular tactics, for example, cyber warfare, to hit us where we are at our weakest. Which isn't to say, I don't mean to imply there will never be a conventional war in the future. I'm not saying we need to get rid of our conventional high-end forces because there is a need to deter potential threats, whether in China or North Korea or other countries. All I'm saying is the type of warfare we are most likely to encounter is irregular warfare, and so we'd better be ready for that because it's, it's, it's been around and it's not going away. Seymour uh, Cohen, uh, the British were able to offer the, uh, in Asia freedom. To the, uh, uh, freedom. The French couldn't offer very much initially because there were a million French living in Algeria and they, they couldn't negotiate with the FLN. And when de Gaulle, who was the only person who could do it, saying, I remember his famous speech, I was in Europe at the time, I am the late c'est moi, I am the state, he essentially said. C'est moi de Gaulle qui vous parle, it's I, de Gaulle, who speak to you. And they almost had a revolution and had the airport in Paris blocked off so paratroopers couldn't land. How do we confront Islamic radicalism? What do we have to offer them? Well, that's a good question. The, the, the advantage we face is we are not in the position of France and Algeria. We are not a colonial power trying to preserve our sovereignty over a Muslim land. We don't have a million settlers living in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
And for those of you who have visited Iraq and Afghanistan, it's not hard to see why, why that's the case. So that's actually an advantage, because we are not fighting to preserve our rule over these people. What we are actually fighting for, at least that's what we say we're fighting for, is to vindicate democratic, stable self-government in these countries. That's what, we, that's what we want to see. And I think that is actually a message that does have tremendous popular appeal. Because when you, if you listen to what the crowds were saying during the Arab Spring when they were calling for the downfall of dictators, whether in Libya or Tunisia or Egypt, they were not asking for the imposition of, of a puritanical form of Sharia law. What they were asking for was economic opportunity, for representation, for democracy. So their ideals are in many ways similar to our ideals. The problem is, of course, it's one thing to have ideals, it's another thing to realize them. And a lot of people in the Middle East love the idea of democracy in theory, they just don't know how it would work in practice. And so we should not be overly sanguine about the outcome of the current turmoil uh, in the Middle East. I mean, if you just think about what it took for democracy to emerge in, in Western Europe, when you think about the French going through their bloody revolution starting in 1789 and further revolutions in 1830, 1848, 1870, and then the overthrow of various republics, including, as you, as you alluded to, the Fourth Republic in the late 1950s, there was a lot of turmoil before France became the, the semi-stable democracy that it is today. <laughs> We should not be surprised if there is similar turmoil in the Middle East. I think there is a role that we can play in, in helping the process along, but it's going to require using tools a lot more sophisticated and a lot more indirect than simply drone strikes. What we need to think about this, the way we need to think about this is, we are truly facing a counterinsurgency, and the insurgents we are facing, these jihadists, are fighting on multiple battlefields and not just in physical countries, but in cyberspace. So we need to blunt their appeal. We need to try to buttress the forces of moderation in the Muslim world, using every means at our disposal, whether covert warfare, propaganda, sometimes military means, most, most often non-military means. Just as in a, in a counterinsurgency, you can't rely simply on force. You also have to buttress the legitimacy of the institutions that will be resistant uh, to the onslaught of the insurgents. That's what we have to do, but it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to even describe that strategy and how it would be implemented, which is why we tend to rely, I think, far too much on drone strikes, which are easy and get obvious results. But as I said before, they're not going to win this war. We have to invest in long-term change in the Middle East to move it along in a positive direction of, of sustaining and, and, and developing liberal democracy, which will not be easy. But I, I just don't see a, a credible alternative. I, I, I was just going to, that was going to be the next question, long-term yep. change. Queen Elizabeth visited Northern Ireland last year, right. and she went before a monument dedicated to those who died at the hands of British imperial, imperialism. This is the Queen of England visiting this, so nothing is impossible. That was going to be my next, my next question. Do you see a, a day when the United States can actually break, and this is, sounds impossible, break bread with moderate elements of Al-Qaeda and actually say, where, where can we meet, what is the problem? Where can we, um, where can we make amends? I know that sounds crazy now, but it, 40 years ago, the Queen of England visiting, I know, I know I'm, I'm c comparing apples to oranges maybe, I don't know. Well, 
You never want to say never, but I'm thinking that moderate elements of Al-Qaeda is an oxymoron. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Don't, no, don't get me wrong. There are actually more moderate elements of the Islamist movement of which Al-Qaeda is one part. And so we should certainly think about reaching out to more moderate Islamists, although, of course, that approach carries its dangers as well. But in fact, right now, uh, in Egypt, we're dealing with a Muslim uh, Brotherhood regime, which is certainly Islamist in its orientation, but more moderate, at least on the surface, than, than al-Qaeda. And so we should certainly not declare war on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. We should figure out how we can influence their behavior and how to work with them. And that is, that is something that is achievable right now in terms of moderating al-Qaeda. I, I see very little hope of that happening because I think that al-Qaeda is, is a small, relatively small, very extremist organization, which is not gonna moderate any more than, for example, the Bader Meinhof gang did, the, the, the German terrorist group, which terrorized West Germany in the 1970s. Ultimately, the solution to the problem of, of the Bader Meinhof gang was good police work, good intelligence, hunting down uh, the ringleaders and, and stamping their movement out of existence. I think that's what we have to do with Al-Qaeda, but we do have to be cognizant of the fact that some people who might be sympathetic to Al-Qaeda are not certainly hardline Al-Qaeda members. And there are many people in the Muslim world who are sympathetic to Islamist ideals, who want very little to do with Al-Qaeda or its extremist violence. So I think that there is a moderate center of Muslim public opinion we can, we can appeal to. I just don't think that there are a lot of moderates in Al-Qaeda. I don't think they would have a long lifespan. Listen, on this happy note, <laughs> let's all run to our apartments. But, um, but before you run to your apartment, you can buy a copy of Invisible Armies in our bookstore. Thank you all so much for coming, and let's give